0: Mm. Diamonds in a rough, discovering uncut gems in job interviews and college admissions, success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life, as by the obstacles overcome while trying to succeed. On a historic evening in 1972, 10-year-old Jos Hernandez kneeled in front of an old black and white television. He gripped the rabbit ears of the antenna used, using his body to boost the signal. As the fuzzy image on the screen became clearer, Josh watched that the last Apollo astronauts bound across the surface of the moon. Josh was mesmerized by the moonwalk, but he but he yearned for an even better view. He unglued his eyes from the screen, raced outside to look at the moon, and ran back in time to see one of the astronauts take his final giant leap. Josh hoped that one day He could etch his own footsteps alongside theirs in the lunar dirt. Many kids go through an astronaut phase, but Jose was committed to making his dream a reality. Since his strongest subjects were math and science, he decided engineering would be his ride to space. Over the next two decades, he earned a bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering and landed a job as an engineer at a federal research facility. He wanted to make his application as strong as possible for NASA. In in 1989, Joe was ready to throw his hat in the ring. He carefully filled out the 47 sections of the astronaut's application, enclosed his resume and transcripts, and shipped his packet off to Houston. Soon he was checking his mailbox daily, eagerly awaiting an envelope from NASA. After 10 long months, it finally arrived. He ripped it open and read the letter from the head of the astronaut selection office not selected. Jose wasn't phased. His aspirations were high, but his expectations were modest. He knew the odds were long. He took the initiative to call NASA for feedback and followed up with a letter asking how he could improve. I would like to increase my chances during the next selection process by correcting or improving any deficiency that I may be unaware of, but I discovered in my application package. I would therefore deeply appreciate any feedback you can provide regarding the status of my application the level of consideration it was given and any comments, if possible, made by reviewers concerning my application. A special thank you for taking time off your schedule to fulfill one of what must be thousands of requests. Nasa got back to him with disappointing news since he hadn't made it past the initial screening, they didn't have notes or advice for him to absorb undeterred He applied again. It was rejected again. Joe's didn't give up. hope. He kept putting himself back in the ring, revising his resume, highlighting his strengths, updating his references as he reapplied only to be met by rejection after rejection. He couldn't even get his foot on the door for an interview. In 1996, the last rejection broke his spirit. Joe's had the sinking feeling that he would never be enough for NASA. He crumpled the letter into a ball and threw it at the garbage can. He was so disappointed that when it missed he just left it on the floor. In life there are few things more consequential than the adjustment people make of our potential. And colleges evaluate students for admission. And employers interview applicants for jobs, they are making forecasts about future success. These predictions can become gateways to opportunities, whether the door swings open or slams shut, hangs in there in the balance of their assessments. What Joe didn't know what that none of his applications even registered a blip on NASA's radar. They were looking for people for people with operational experience making decisions in high stress environments. They expected to see noteworthy accomplishments by engineers. They took notice of applicants who graduated at the top of their class. NASA was focused on finding people who had already achieved great things and by their standards. That wasn't June. But what's But what NASA's process failed is to capture as so many organizations do, was a candidate's potential for doing greater things. In the time between application cycles, Joe's had developed and demonstrated the unusual combination of technical, physical and character skills that NASA supposedly prized. With a mentor at work, he won a government grant and developed a district cancer detection technology that helped save many lives. In his spare time he ran seven marathons with a personal best under three hours twenty six point two miles at a pace under seven minutes per mile, along with being disciplined and determined. He was Pro-social, he volunteered his tutor to tutor high school students in math. Started a chapter of a professional society for Mexican-American scientists and engineers, and served his community in series of local and national leadership roles. Each time he reapplied to be an astronaut, he highlighted new accomplishments, but they didn't make a dent. NASA missed the market, missed the markers of Joe's potential because their selection process wasn't designed to detect them. They had information about work experience and the past performance, not life experience and background. They didn't know that Jose was raised in a family of migrant farm workers. They didn't know that when he started kindergarten in California, he didn't speak English and it wasn't until he turned 12 that he finally felt fluent. They didn't know that he had traveled a great distance just to make it to college and become an engineer. The lack of accomplishment in his early application seemed to reveal the absence of ability, but it actually indicated the presence of adversity. It's a mistake to judge people solely by the heights they are, they have reached by favoring applicants who have already excelled selection systems, underestimate and and overlook candidates who are capable of greater things. When we confuse past performance with future potential, we miss out on people whose achievements have involved overcoming major obstacles. We need to consider how how steep the, their slope was, how far they have climbed and how they have grown along the way. The test of diamond in the rough is not whether it shines from the start, but how it responds to heat or pressure. The sorting has it out of sorts. For much of human history, opportunity was a privilege of birthright. It, if you had noble blood, the world was your oyster. If you weren't from the right background, your lot was already cast and your options were limited. Across injuries in many cultures, this dynamic has transformed as people have challenged monarchies, aristocracies, and caste systems. In Confucian China, successive dynasties began opening government posts. To anyone who could pass a difficult civil service exam, they still had a long way to go because women and people with disabilities were prohibited from taking the exam. In ancient Greece, Socrates and Plato proposed that the societies should be ruled by philosopher kings who earned their wisdom by studying. Their intent was not merely to reimagine how people are chosen to lead. It was to pave the way for new social orders that rewarded individuals for agency and ability today opening doors to anyone qualified and a higher priority for universities and employers. In principle application process invite people from a wide range of backgrounds to show what they are capable of. But in practice, our systems for judging qualifications are flawed. In schools and workplaces, selection systems are usually designed to detect excellence. That means people who are on their way to excellence rarely make the cut. We don't pay enough attention to these people and their paths, which are often filled with speed bumps and roadblocks when we fail to see hidden potential along the way, along with shattering people's dreams. We lose out on their contributions, our errors in identifying people come at multiple stages of the assessment process as we struggle to contend with limited time and large applicant pools during an initial screen it's impossible to really to really get a uh, get to know every candidate there isn't an algorithm for spotting diamonds in the rough and uh, aren't enough hours in the day to do a deep dive into each person's life history. Evaluators end up making life-altering decisions for candidates who have been reduced to thin slices of information. In the first stages of hiring employers, trying to address this challenge by relying on credentials, the assumption is that the best colleges admit and produce the best candidates yet pedigrees aren't all they are cracked up to be. In a study of over 28,000 students, those who attended higher-ranking universities performed only slightly better than their peers on consulting projects. If you look at the quality of their work and their contributions as collaborators, a Yale student was just 1.9% better than a Cleveland State student, and if you require a bachelor's degree, you lose out on over half the American workforce. This systematically disadvantages. Candidates who acquire skills through alternative routes, at trade schools or two-year community colleges, through apprenticeships or military service, or by teaching themselves or learning on the job, beyond college degrees, many managers turn to prior experience to get an initial sense of candidates' qualifications. But it turns out that The amount of experience is also borderline irrelevant. In a meta-analysis of 44 studies with over 11,000 people across a wide range of jobs, prior work experience had virtually no bearing on performance. A candidate with 20 years of experience on a resume may have just repeated the same year of experience 20 times. So you need experience to get a job, but you need a job to get experience. So, and that experience reveals about little about your potential. The key question is not how long people have done a job, it's how well they can learn to do a job. It's how well they can learn to do a job. To decide which candidates to advance to the next round, many employers look at prior performance compared to credentials and prior work experience. This is a better clue to potential. How well someone has performed in the past can give us a sense of their ability in the present. But this metric also has drawbacks that lead us to overlook the potential in too many people. Past performance is only helpful if the new job requires similar skills. To the old one. In a study of over 38,000 salespeople, economists found that the most successful salespeople were more likely to be promoted to manager, but sales skills aren't the same as managerial skills. The candidates who were better at closing deals were worse at managing people. It turned out that the managers who elevated a team's performance were in the biggest train makers, but the most pro-social members, as indicated by how often they had made collaborative sales with their colleagues. This is an example of a phenomenon known as the Peter Principle. It's the idea that people at work tend to get promoted to their level of incompetence. They keep advancing based on their success in previous jobs until they get trapped in a new role starts beyond their abilities in this case the best salespeople went on to become incompetent managers and the best potential managers got suck as mediocre salespeople even if a candidate's past performance is relevant to the current role this metric is designed to detect polished diamonds not uncut gems take tom Brady. whether you love him or hate him he's widely regarded as the greatest quarterback in football history but when he entered the NFL, he wasn't drafted until the 199th pick. Based on his performance in the college and in the draft, combined scouts had, series, had serious doubts about whether Brady's arm was strong enough to zip a spiral and heard a Hail Mary. It was unlikely that he would be fast enough to escape a blitz. The problem is that scouts were focusing on Brady's body, not his mind. They were right about his physical limitations, despite weighing only 211 pounds brady was outrun by 25 different linemen who tipped the scales at 300 plus pounds but scouts didn't account for what journalists would later call his nerves of steel they didn't open up his chest and look at the heart one coach laminant, lamented it's often said that the talent sets of the floor but character sets the ceiling brady's Brady went on to break through the zoomed ceilings. The year he turned forty, he beat his forty year forty yard dash timing time from when he was twenty. Of course, when you are as low, as low as Tom Brady, the floor is pretty low. If natural talent determines where people start, learn character effects, how far they go. But character skills aren't always immediately apparent. If we don't look beyond the surface, we risk missing the potential for brilliance beneath uncut gems. When I wanted to find out how to identify hidden potential, I knew NASA was an ideal organization to study. The stakes are sky high. Picking the wrong astronaut could jeopardize a mission and cost crews their lives. That left the agency much more concerned about false positives accepting bad candidates than false negatives rejecting good ones. To understand why we miss potential and how we can spot it, I reached out to Duane Ross. He led astronaut selection at NASA. For four decades, singing the rejection letters personally by hand, including each of Joe's, I wanted to learn about the process of shifting through the dreams of thousands of applicants to put the future of a space exploration in the hands of a select few. Duane and his colleague, Teresa Gomez, were hunting for the rare candidates with the right stuff, with between 2,400 and 3,100 applications. For only 11 to 35 spots, they had to quickly size up who had potential and who didn't from what they could see. Jose Hernandez didn't have it. NASA had no idea that Jose was raised in poverty by undocumented immigrants. To make ends meet, the entire family took a long road trip from Central Mexico to Northern California. Each winter, they stopped at farms along the way to pick everything from strawberries and grapes to tomatoes and cucumbers. Come fall, they headed back down to Mexico for a few months and then they started the routine again. The journey forced Joe to miss several months of school and scrape by during the rest of the year in three different districts. After Joe started second grade, his father began cobbling cobbling together a day job so so they could stay in one place, but Joe still had to work weekends in the field to help support his family. That left him with limited time for homework and he couldn't rely on his parents for assistance. They only had third grade education. That history was invisible to NASA. In their search for the right stuff, they didn't have access to the right stuff. What should in? do? The process is <coughs> how hard it was for them to get there. Duane Ross told me recently having retired after half a century at NASA. Early on, we developed our own applications form so we could ask about that then the government decided that all applications had to be exactly the same so we lost a lot of that with thousands of candidates they could only check references on 400 and interview to top 120 for the initial screen, the federally regulated application process focused on work experience, education, special skills, and honors and awards. The forum didn't ask for unconventional skills like picking grapes. It didn't signal that gaining a command of the English language would qualify as an honor. The award section wasn't a place to mention passing physics while working in the fields. The system wasn't designed to identify and weigh the adversity candidates had overcome. This reinforced Joseph's believe that his background should stay underground. The last section of the application asked for other ac- experience in pertinent activities like flying. When I asked Joe's why he didn't volunteer his history as a migrant farm worker, he said I didn't think it had any relevance. I even thought it might hurt me in a world where I was trying to assimilate as a professional. If NASA had been aware of his past difficulties, they might have caught a glimpse of his future potential. Quantifying the unquantifiable we all know that the performance depends on m- depends on more than ability it's also a function of degree of difficulty how capable you appear to be is often a reflection of how hard your task is the same geopardy contestant will look smarter on the dollar 200 questions than the dollar 1000 stumpers the same comedian will seem Funnier in front of a tipsy crowd at a nightclub than with a bunch of bankers in the morning. Yet, when we judge potential, we often focus on execution and ignore def- degree of difficulty. We inadvertently favor candidates who ace easy tasks and dismiss those who pass taxing trials, we don't see the skills they have developed to overcome obstacles, especially the skills that don't show up on a resume. And many systems aren't designed to surface and measure degree of difficulty because doing that is well difficult. Some have tried and failed miserably. In 2019, the start introduced an adversity score, awarding students up to 100 points from for the hardships they face in their families, neighborhoods, and schools. The backslash was so fervent that it didn't even Last the year, there was a little consensus on the types of adversity to count, let alone how to score them. Social scientists have long found that people can have dramatically different reactions to the same event. One person's trauma may be, may be another setback. One person's roadblock is another's hurdle. We can calculate the degree of difficulty in a dive, but there isn't a formula to quantify the degree of difficulty in a life. The, this is a problem that has long plagued affirmative action efforts, creating policies creating policies that favor un, underrepresented groups in a politically charged issue. Liberals and conservatives have heated debates about whether it levels the playing field by compensating for historical injustice or perpetuates injustice by introducing reverse discrimination. Where, wherever you stand ideologically, Ideologically, as a social scientist, it's my job to look at the best evidence. It turns out that affirmative action is often a double-edged sword, even for the people it's designed to serve. In a meta-analysis of 45 studies, when their organizations had affirmative action, members of disadvantaged groups struggled more with their tasks and get poorer performance reviews. The mere presence of an affirmative action policy was enough to raise questions about their competence in the eyes of observers. This and their own minds. This effects even held in experiments establishing that women and racial minorities were highly qualified. Many groups are still restrained by cultural and structural shackles. It's important to find systematic ways to open doors for people who have been deprived of opportunity, but it's unfortunate. That these well meaning efforts are implemented in ways that leave the intended beneficiaries and others wondering whether they earned their place. Even if we could solve that problem, policies that address group hardship don't capture all the difficulties individuals have endured. When professional Orchestras finally started making concerted efforts to hire women, a popular solution was to have candidates audition from behind a screen, being unable to identify the gender of musicians forced evaluators to focus on their skill, although that improved the odds for women, it didn't entirely close the gender gap, since women didn't have access to the same professional training, affirmative action advocates might argue for gender quotas or for temporarily lowering skills requirements for women based on the disadvantages they had faced as a group but doing so runs the risk of casting doubt on the competence of female musicians. Accounting for their individual degree of difficulty points to a more helpful solution. Adjusting skill expectations by access to opportunity, for example, orchestra auditions would have different standards of, for candidates who were self-taught than those who trained at Juilliard. The goal of measuring degree of difficulty at the individual level isn't to advantage people who face adversity, it's to make sure we don't disadvantage people for navigating adversity. It seems that personal essays would give us a window into a college applicant's challenges, but students who have experienced extreme suffering are understandably distraught at the thought of of advertising their trauma and marketing their pain. Meanwhile. Those who have been lucky enough to avoid significant setbacks often feel pressure to exaggerate their to exaggerate their own struggles, ultimately the the key indicator of potential is in the severity of adversity people encounter, it's how they react to it, that's what a better selection system would assess. Making the invisible visible Too often our selection system fails to weigh achievement. In the context of degree of difficulty, research shows that when P students apply to graduate school admissions officers pay surprisingly little attention to, to the difficulty of their courses and majors, aching essay easy. Acing as a easy classes might give you higher odds of acceptance than doing reasonably well in hard in classes. Think about how unfair that is. If admissions officers were Olympic figure skating judges, they might have a skater who gets 6s on a quadruple axle losing to one who gets 8s on a simple loop. If they were choosing a financial advisor, they would pick one who earned great returns in a bull market. Over one who achieved good returns in a bear market. I don't blame admissions officers or hiring managers. Don't many don't know their proxy measures are poor, and few have been trained to look for better signals of signs of potential. I have been serving on Ivy League admissions committees and making hiring decisions for two decades, and it didn't occur to me until now to look at applicants' grades relative to the difficulty of their majors without being able to compare one curriculum to another. I was ill-equipped to compare one applicant's accomplishments to another's. I should have known better selection systems need to put performance in context. It's like having wrestlers compete in their own weight class. A promising approach is to create metrics that objectively compare students to their peer group. Along with each student's grades, transcripts should display the grade points, averages, and ranges for their schools and majors, displaying the difficulty of the task is only one way of contextualizing performance. We can also adjust for difficulty outside the classroom by comparing students to peers in similar circumstances. Some some schools have taken the promising step of expanding transcripts to show students grades relative to their neighborhood. Experiments show that this can Help admission officers spot the potential in lower income students without reducing their enthusiasm about students from families with greater means. In the United Kingdom, universities and employers are starting to weigh discrete signs of economic hardship like holding a work-study job and receiving free means. I asked Duane Ross about this idea and he told me that if this kind of information had appeared on Joseph's application, NASA would have given him a closer look if a candidate was a migrant farmer. We would have better noticed that particularly if he went on and did something so positive. Although this approach can help us identify some uncut gems, many difficulties are more subjective and harder to measure than tough grading and financial hardship. We need a way to assess the distance people have travelled to overcome the unique obstacles in their path. The good news is that schools and employers already have access to some valuable data if only they knew where to look. <coughs> rise overrun. In a startling study, economist George Bulman analyzed a massive data set containing every high school graduate in Florida from 1999 to 2002. The goal was to investigate whether their grades were predict, would predict their future success measured in terms of college graduation rates and income earned a decade later. Freshman year's grades revealed nothing about students' potential for future success so for more and journey junior year grades did matter every gpa point higher was worth five percent more income later and senior year grades were twice as important every gpa point was worth 10 percent higher income but What really foreshadowed earnings potential was whether students improved over time. Unfortunately, colleges typically erase that trajectory by collapsing it into a single score. They sorted students based on their average grades over four years, neglecting to consider whether they got got better or worse. Similar patterns held for the odds of finishing college students whose grades improved from freshman to junior year of high school were were significantly more likely to graduate from college. And less likely to drop out than those whose grades declined over the same period, but our admissions officers didn 't take that delta into account <coughs> it 's hard to overstate how ridiculous that is. School judge you as much for your performance three years ago as for three months ago, and they don 't even bother to look at the worse at the most recent and relevant data at all. We penalize people who rise after rocky. <coughs> starts when we should be rewarding them for the distance they have traveled. The, it's time for universities and employers to add another metric. Along with GPA, I think they should be assessing GPT grade point trajectory. They can calculate the rate of improvement over time with basic divisions rise or were run. Early failure followed by later success is a mark of hidden potential. On the basis of GPA alone, compared to the other engineers applying to become astronauts, Joe's didn't stand out. In college, he had gotten C's in chemistry, calculus, and programming. He, his lackluster performance raised questions about whether he had uh, the technical aptitude required to be a, a flight engineer or mission specialist. To their credit, NASA didn't have strict grade cutoffs, but they did favor candidates who excelled academically. And they didn't know why Joe's grad- grades have, had suffered or why they improved over time. To afford tuition, Joe's Worked With Graveyard Joe's worked the graveyard shift at fruit and vegetable cannery, arriving at 10 pm and finishing at 6 am. It was a strain to stay alert in class, let alone master the material. When the fruit season ended, he worked nights and weekends as a restaurant busboy. Between demanding classes and a grueling schedule, he finished his first semester with a C average. As he struggled academically, Joe started to feel like an outsider and question his abilities. Extensive evidence has identified a social class achievement gap. First-generation college students tend to underperform academically due to a series of invisible disadvantages. The expectation to pave their own paths discourages them from seeking help. The pressure to pay their own way the presence of self-doubt and the absence of belonging all interfere with their ability to focus the first semester of college was a particularly bumpy period for joe's things improved as he found work with more reasonable arts established a more sustainable routine and took the initiative to seek tutoring to fill the gaps in his knowledge with each semester his grades climbed his gpa rose from 2.41 to 2.9 from his freshman fall to spring and then up again to 3.33 and 3.56 for the fall and spring of his sophomore year. He went on to earn many as and graduate with cum laude honors. He won a full scholarship to a master's program in engineering at the University of California. Santa Barbara, although he didn't have a perfect GPA, he aged grade point trajectory. One caveat, when using improvement as a mark of potential, it's important to set reasonable expectations. In an initial screen up what trajectories are, hence that candidates have overcome adversity. But we can't always expect a sharp rise. When people face major setbacks, the slopes they have to climb, get steeper, and maintaining steady performance can be an achievement in itself. No single measure of improvement should be our sole metric. Trajectories are a valuable start but they don't paint a full picture of potential to gauge the distance people are capable of traveling on steep slopes. It's also crucial it's all critical to take a closer look at the skills and abilities they have gained so far. Instead of looking at past experience or past performance, we should find out what they have learned and how well they can learn. And to do that, we need to rethink how we interview people. The most fascinating approach I have seen is at a call center in Israel. Interview without a vampire. several gets a go, a therapist in training name. Jill Winch became frustrated with clinical psychology. It wasn't enough to help one client at a time. He wanted to solve problems on a larger scale. One day, when talking with a neighbor who was paralyzed, Gill learned that worldwide people with disabilities were struggling to find work. People with impairments uh, in their hearing, vision movement, memory learning, and communication shared a common experience whether they had a physical disability or a psychological disorder. They knew from a lifetime of a stigma and rejection that they were likely to be underestimated and overlooked. Gill noticed that job interviews put people with disabilities at a disadvantage. A typical interview is set up like an interrogation. Evaluators grill you on your shortcomings. What are your greatest weaknesses? Here's a list of every mistake I have ever made in order. They also, they ask you impossible questions about your future. What do you see yourself in five years? taking your job and asking better interview questions. Some even try to stump you with brains, with brain teasers. How many golf balls can you fit in a jumbo jet? Why would anyone fill a jet with golf balls even for candidates who aren't facing a disability? This approach amplifies anxiety and awkwardness. The stress created in interviews prevents us from seeing people full potential. That stress tends to be especially pronounced for people who have been underestimated in the past. Just knowing that there's a stereotype about your group is enough to undermine your performance under pressure. The fear of confirming negative stereotypes has been shown to disrupt focus and brain working memory, obscuring the abilities of women on math tests, immigrants on verbal tests, black students on the SAT. All older adults on cognitive tests and students with physical and learning disabilities on a range of tests. They are set up to fail. Gil wanted to showcase the abilities of people with disabilities to make sure their differences didn't stop them. From traveling great distances, he did something radical. He launched a call center stopped entirely by people with disabilities he named to call yak which is Hebrew for able to do anything to set job candidates up for success he reversed the standards interview process the system he created is filled with the surprises before you show up you fill out a questionnaire about your passions from cherished books to beloved music to favorite hobbies for support you are invited to bring a partner or a pet to the interview as soon as you arrive you discover for the, you discover that the interviewers are the opposite of interrogation interrogators they are hosts they give you a tour offer you Offer you coffee or tea and treat you like a guest in their home. They direct you to what looks like a living room with big, comfy chairs and ask you about some of your passions. The goal isn't just to help you relax; it's also a chance for them to see you light up about what you love. Next, you get a show. You get to showcase your strengths instead of bombarding with, instead of bombarding you with an uh, with immediate with intimidating riddles. And unfamiliar problems, Gil handcrafted a series of challenges that give you the opportunity to exhibit your skills in familiar situations keen to display your determination in the face of obstacles. Get ready to meet a difficult neighbor who objects to you all your ideas for renovating your building excited to display your attention to detail it's time for don't it's time for don't kill granny it's she's allergic to peanuts, and your task is to pick out the safe item for her heard from a long grocery list, want to prove you excel at persuasion and negotiation, tell us how you would convince a teenager not to look at his phone during dinner. In the science of interviewing, there's a name for these kinds of demonstrations. They are called work samples. A work sample is a snapshot of an applicant's skill. Sometimes you can provide one by submitting a portfolio of your past work. Many colleges have those built into their admissions processes inviting students to submit their creative portfolios you can send it recordings if you are a musician scripts if you are a screenwriter or playwright and videos if you are an actor dancer or magician but past worker samples have similar limitations to past performance they leave us comparing apples, apples and oranges with no way to account for the different difficulties candidates have endured to date a powerful alternative is to create real-time work samples, give everyone the same problem to solve in the present. There's a wealth of evidence that these kinds of life of live work samples can fill gaps in the interviews by eliminating candidates' capabilities instead of relying solely on what people say. You get to observe what they <coughs> what they can do, which applicants appreciate. I first stumbled onto work samples early in my career when I didn't know. They had a name, a colleague and I were hiring a team of salespeople and we decided to ask them to sell us a rotten apple. One applicant's pitch pitch was unforgettable. This may look like a rotten apple, but it isn't. But it's actually an aged antique apple. They say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And the longer they age, the more nutrients they gain. And you can plant the seeds in your backyard after resolving some honesty. Concerns that particular candidate ended up being the best salesperson I ever hired. Since then I have seen a range of creative approaches to real-time work work samples across industries. My favorites include schools that evaluate the proactivity of teaching applicants by asking them to prepare a live class and manufacturing firms that assess the pro social skills of aircraft mechanic candidates by asking them to build a Lego helicopter together. Work samples are often one-and-done, but your first effort is rarely your best effort. That's another stumbling block the system at Kaul Yachol removes. Their work samples are designed to give people second chances to succeed. If you get stuck when you are trying not to kill granny, you can call a timeout and ask for some help. At the end of the interview, instead of being judged, you get to do the judge. You are asked to rate. Your interview experience are welcome. The interviewer made you feel and whether you performed at your best. If you are not happy with how it went, you get to do ever. You get to you get a do over. They ask you what they can do differently to get to know you better. When a man named Harvey showed up at Carl Yak Hull for his second interview, it was clear that he was struggling to concentrate. The interviewer paused and asked him how he was feeling. Harvey was the Harvey was on the autism spectrum, and he explained that when his shoes felt uncomfortable that morning, he spilled coffee on his shirt while trying to fix them and missed his bus. He was flustered after scrambling to arrive on time, and his shoes still didn't feel right. The interviewer called a break, called a break, and gave him an hour to reset. Harvey is the Redo and got the job. Collecting work samples takes time, but many work samples can now now be gathered online. It's easier than ever to create digital problem-solving tasks if we run them in person. It's no more time-consuming than conducting an interview. We invest that time because we know how much it matters to be thoughtful about who we let in the door. And despite all the developments in artificial intelligence, I have yet to meet an algorithm that would spot the potential in Harvey. He has a difficult cold calling job where rudeness and rejection are the norm. Most people quit in their first few years but Harvey has been a paragon of grit and resilience. He's been a star for eight years consistently reaching his monthly goals and receiving an award in front of the whole call centers as the employee of the quarter. Industry insiders were skeptical that Gill's hiring model would work especially for a call center. They didn't expect people with disabilities to thrive in a fast-paced, high-pressure environment. It took Gill a full year to recruit his first client when it finally happened in 2009, and he hired 15 people with a range of disabilities and disorders. In one case, he had a manager who was legally blind, supervising an employee with hearing loss. It didn't sound a recipe for success, but Gill was confident it would work. Having seen their strengths up close, he knew the distance the team was capable of travelling. They didn't just meet expectations, they shattered them. Since then, Carl war has grown. Many of their teammates have exceeded industry, benchmarks for early leads and time on the phone with clients and some have outperformed teams without disabilities. To Gil, that was only the beginning. He knew that the people with disabilities were only one group of people whose potential has had been ignored. He expanded his hiring model to create opportunities for other disadvantaged groups from immigrants to the formerly incarcerated. In 2018, the team was invited to Israel's parliament to receive an award honoring the, God, the, honoring the good they had done for the individuals and society. An interview model like YAKOL is not just a compelling way to open the door to underdogs. I think it's a way to recognize the potential in everyone. It enables each candidate's skills to shine through. Interrogations make all of us anxious and anyone can run into mishaps on the way to a job interview skills are best caused by what people can do now what they say or what they have done before instead of trying to trip people up we should give them a give them the chance to put their best foot forward how they respond in a do-over is a more meaningful window into their character than how they handle the first try. A window of opportunity. Since NASA invited candidates to update their applications every year, Joe's got an annual do-over. By 1996, after a string of rejections, he was on the verge of quitting when his wife Adela encouraged him not to throw away his dream. Let Let NASA be the one to disqualify you, she urged, don't disqualify yourself. Joe's realized that there was more he could do to qualify himself. He would become a sponge. He learned that most astronauts were pilots and scuba divers. So he took a year to earn his pilot's license and spent another year diving, driving to scuba di- diving training every weekend until he got his basic advanced and master certifications and when his federal lab presented him with an unconventional opportunity to work on curtailing nuclear pro- proliferation in Siberia, Jose took it on one condition. He would get to learn to speak Russian as a part of the deal. He hoped it would help him stand out in NASA's next cycle. <coughs> in 1998, when jose was 36, he sent off another astronaut application, and at long last, there was encouraging news. over. Of over 2,500 applicants, he was one of he was one of 120 finalists. Jose finally had an opportunity to provide a complete life work sample. He went through a full week of physical and psychological assessment at Johnson Space Center. Former astronauts queried queried him on engineering and technicalities and teamwork and communication skills. He took he took tests that required him to rotate objects in his mind and solve problems under pressure. Out of a possible 99 points, the astronaut selection board gave Joes a score of 91. The interviewers didn't ask him about hardship directly. They gave him an hour to talk about his background. For the first time, feeling confident that he had proven his technical skills, Joes opened up and told NASA, he would started out as a migrant farmer. If you could accomplish all that by coming from some place like Joe's did, Duane Ross says to overcome all that and get to the same place other people got, then you have a lot of desire and capability. After the interview, Joe's got a personal call from Duane. Unfortunately, they were rejecting him again. But this time there was a silver lining. They were offering him a job, not as an astronaut, but as an engineer. Joe's had been adapting every year. Now he would have to adapt again. Although he might not be going up himself, he could be part of the mission to send humans to space. This The experience taught him a lesson. There is more than one star in the sky and more than one goal and one purpose in life. After a number of years working as a NASA engineer in 2004, Joe's heard his phone ring. The voice on the other end of the line asked if he was replaceable. Joe said he was happy to train someone to take his place. Uh, Good, the manager said, how would you like to come work for the astronaut office? After 15 years of applying, Joe was selected to go to space. The second I heard the good news, he recalls, my whole body went numb. He raced home to break the news to his wife, children and parents who celebrated the hug hugging and dancing. In August 2009, a few weeks after turning 47, Joe stepped into the space shuttle. He sat down, buckled in and braced himself for takeoff. Just before midnight, he heard the countdown and watched the engines light up. Eight and a half minutes after blasting into the sky, the engines shut off. The and Joes couldn't believe his eyes to convince himself it was real he tossed a piece of equipment up watching it hover he marveled i guess we are in space joes had gone from picking strawberries in fields to floating among the stars over the course of 2 weeks in space he flew over 5 million miles it was a short hop compared to the distance he had traveled for the chance to wear a space suit as exciting as it was it is to see a, a candidate like joes succeeded isn't enough. His success shows us what we are missing in so many others. He had to break the mold to make it through a broken system. He's the exception, but he should be the rule. When we evaluate people, there's nothing more rewarding than finding a diamond in the rough. Our job isn't to apply the pressure that brings out their brilliance. It's to make sure we don't overlook those who have already faced that pressure and recognize their potential to shine.